Hello everyone, this is the Skinny Strong Podcast and today we have Josh Williamson on. Today we're going to be talking about hypertrophy. Basically hypertrophy for dummies, absolutely everything. So why, what are we doing, why are we lifting these weights, why is everything going on? Um, yes, yeah, that's basically what we're going to cover. Um, so that you can have a clearer mind on what you're trying to achieve. Josh has got a very big background within evidence, within research, um, but yeah, I'll let him sort of explain. So, Josh, tell everyone how you've got to where you are today. Ben, thanks for having me on. Um, appreciate appreciate you asking me to come on board with your podcast and discuss hypertrophy. It's always sort of humbling when you get asked for your opinion on certain topics, so I just want to start off by thanking you formally. Um. To give a bit of background, I'm currently doing my PhD in exercise biochemistry, so that's sort of my main area of focus at the minute. But prior to that, I done my master's in exercise and performance nutrition, and from that over the past three four years, I've been lucky enough to work with a range of individuals. You know, we're talking the absolute basic beginner just want to look better naked, but that's probably that's probably us all right up to the elite athlete, you know, people going to Commonwealth Games, people going to World Championships and bringing medals back, and then everyone in between. So you're talking football teams, Gaelic teams, hockey players, powerlifters, range of people, which is a blessing in itself to have that diversity. In terms of my own sort of personal training, I used to be an international sprinter back when I was a young fella. Back when I was six foot and ten stone, <laughs> whereas now I've sort of found the gains and found the weights, and I put up probably sitting at around two hundred and forty-five pounds at the minute. Fuck so me. I put on a decent bit of mass. Yeah, two hundred forty-five pounds. How many kilos is that? I think it's about one hundred and five, hundred and ten at the minute. Is Man, what I'm I don't want to stand beside yeah. you. You dwarf me. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the most of my training now is just really focused on enjoyment, you know, getting rid of my stress from PhD or research and I just want to enjoy training because I think a lot of people go through periods where they're very demotivated to train. So for me now it's just for enjoyment. I don't want to be a bodybuilder, I don't want to compete. It's just about enjoyment and injury prevention more than anything. And then the last thing probably is that I educate other people, so either doing seminars or lecturing on the undergrad or master's courses within university. That sort of gives you a good background of myself and what I'm doing. And then what are you studying? You're stu- what's your PhD in, man, and what have you studied uh, to date? So the PhD is exercise biochemistry, but the specific area is looking at oxidative stress as a result of exercise. So how our bodies produce free radicals, how they damage DNA, what happens if our DNA doesn't repair. Sometimes that can be a good thing because we know that damage to DNA gives us adaptation and that's how we get um, changes or a certain response. But what happens if the DNA doesn't respond and the gene codes for tumor suppression and then you have an issue with cancer now. So it's all around that sort of area and how can we prevent this or how can we decrease the amount of oxidative stress we're accumulating. And then before my PhD, I was doing my master's in 
exercise and performance nutrition. Awesome, awesome. Um, and then, man, so what are you doing at the minute in your training? So what's your week look like for training at the minute? You're saying it's changed training, focus? I'm, yeah, I'm down to a four-day split now. Um, I was one of these guys who just loved training, so I was always doing something, and I, usually, I was up there a six-day week and having Sundays off, but now just with time commitments, I'm doing sort of shoulders and arms on a Monday. Tuesday was back. Thursday will be legs and then Saturday will be chest and it's more about execution of certain exercises and getting a real good contraction with the muscle and focusing on injury prevention. Awesome man, awesome. Right, so we'll get stuck in the Ben's three B's. So on that note on training, what's been your best training moment to date? I don't want to give the cliche answer of benching 100 kilos because I'm sure that's what a lot of people say. Yeah, someone else has said that. <laughs> yeah. I think I've been lucky enough that I've never really had a serious injury yeah. apart from one. And I had quite a severe back injury. And I would, it didn't leave me paralyzed or anything like that, but it put me out for a good seven, eight months. I couldn't do any lower body loading, couldn't do any posterior chain loading, nothing. Even leg press sort of aggravated it. Things like sitting in the car or going from sitting to standing will cause pain. And it took me eight months working with a physio, very good physio, and rehabbing it. And I think I went from couldn't being able to, to squat 40 kilos for one rep without pain to building myself up to 170 kilos squat off the grass for 10 reps. Unreal. And I think that really made me appreciate the fact that you need to look after mobility, you need to be doing prehab and rehab and just appreciating if there's weaknesses within your structure that you, you can't just always bang through them. And it was a humbling experience, but I think it was one that was required for myself because I was just one of those guys where there's no activation, no warm-up, it was just straight in cold and lifting. And I think that's probably taught me a lot. So that was probably my biggest training moment. Yeah. And do, do you think that um, guys are quite stubborn and we just kind of brush it off? Like, don't we, we know there's a niggle there, but we just kind of don't get, don't, don't really address the root of the cause, the root of the problem and just, yeah, brush it off until shit hits the fan? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of issues, but I think that is one of them, especially with guys. I think there is a lack of appreciation about how fatigue accumulates. And I think that was something that I realized because it wasn't, I wasn't doing any sort of overly strenuous activity. But when I look back on it, my volume was accumulating over six, seven, eight weeks period. And I actually hurt my back, believe it or not. I was getting dressed in the morning and I lifted my foot up to put it into my pants. And the, the nerves in my back just went, it caused the back to hold the spasm. And then because the spasm of the back was so, so strong, it caused all the facet joints in the lock. And so the bottom five, six, seven inches of my back, there was three or four locked vertebrae. And that was a nightmare. It literally felt like I was stabbed in the back and I fell back on bed and couldn't move for 20 minutes without any sort of pain. It was agony. And I think it was just accumulation over time. And I think that's one thing that people don't realize is that if you say, oh, I'm doing training chest twice a week and I'm doing four work sets per session, People think four work sets, what are you doing? Two exercises, two sets, that's nothing. See if you're doing that properly and you're executing properly and you're doing it over 
seven, eight weeks, you're going to notice a fatigue build up and you need to listen to your body. And that's one thing you know we were discussing beforehand, that you need to be able to listen to your body. You need to listen to the feedback it's telling you. If you're sore or if you're tired, you're sore or tired for a reason. It's not, you know, oh, I just didn't sleep well last night. You know? mm, no, 100%. And it's something I try to drill into my guys is basically like be in tune with what your body's feeling and thinking. Now, don't get me wrong, like if we are, if the goal is to get an unbelievable shape, like there is going to be some form of uh, like stress that you will need to put your body under, but like you do need to kind of, you do need to, the skill is knowing when and when to back off and when to go on. Well, yeah, yeah that's uh, the one. One thing that we were discussing beforehand about using different things, you know, different science that is sexy. And one of the things I see a lot at the minute is heart rate variability. And that's very good. You know, I, I love that. I love that stuff. I love knowing why people use that. But it's knowing when to use it and why you're using it. You yeah. know, because if people just think, right, I'm going to start measuring my heart rate variability. Oh, it's high today. I'm not going to train today. And you're like, but what if you actually want overage? What if you want a period of overtraining and then yeah. you're going to follow with a, a deload or something? So you need to know why you're doing these things and not just look at, oh, well, I see Ben doing this, so I'm going to do this. It's like, well, no, that's not how it works. You need to know why Ben's doing this. What phase is he doing his training? Is he overreaching? Or is he just, maybe there's other issues, lifestyle factors that's contributing to that? Yeah. 100%. It's kind of, you see that a lot just in the gym. And like, I would even, as like, I... I fully hold my hand up and say that I've I've done that I've thought of like oh he's doing this he's doing that um let's copy it or let's think or let's you like yeah I fell into that trap when I started training massively like I was reading loads of different things I was doing this because he said so or she said so and yeah yeah I think we I think we all do I think we all do I remember starting a gym the very first night and seeing guys just benching ridiculous weights and thinking right that's how you do it you just move away from A to B, and that's it. And you get massive. And I think it's only when you when you go through that process, you appreciate what what actually's going on. Yeah, JP, I remember following his training plan and being fucked after it after a while. Like, <laughs> yeah, JP knows, knows his stuff. He, he's he's very very knowledgeable. Oh, he does. Um, I went to a seminar and it he, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but again, like uh, as we get into it, I don't think there's any optimal way how to train for hypertrophy. JP has his own version. You look at the likes of Joe Bennett, um, hypertrophy coach, he has his own version. You know, everyone has their own way of working and I think there's more than one way to skin a cat as long as you're applying the mechanisms of hypertrophy. 100%. And then, man, what's been your best life moment? Best life moment? I don't know if I can pick one, Ben, to be honest. Um, or a significant, maybe? Big moment. Like, I got engaged just over a year ago. Yeah. Bought bought a house, bought a house with a partner, and getting accepted on my PhD. That's probably the three biggest standout moments, and Unreal. they're probably not. It's probably not significant to a lot of people, but I just think you know they're. Doesn't matter. Sort of your you're you big know? moment. Your big moment. Um, and then what's been your biggest lesson? Biggest lesson would be something I'd probably base my everyday life on, and that's the only thing you really have 100% control of is your effort and the amount of work you put into something. And if you do something you enjoy, you're going to want 
to progress and you're going to want to put in effort. So find something you love. Go balls to the walls at it and success will come. And I think you're the perfect example of that. You've found your niche now and you're constantly putting out content and you're taking action and you're getting success from it. And I think your first intake there is going to be strong. Give some real good results. You know, you're not afraid to work. Yeah, definitely. Like I've, um, you're probably going to see a recurring uh, message of this, but find something that you fucking just, you get a kick off. doesn't need to be the cliche way. Like I was just asked to go back into my old school to talk about that, to talk about you don't need to follow a conventional route, you don't need to follow um, someone else's train of thought. If you get a kick off doing something, just go for it. Um, doesn't matter. But yeah, yeah. It, it, it won't feel like work. Like a lot of people turn around and say, why are you doing this? Why are you working at this time? Why are you up at this hour and things like that? Because you physically get a kick off it. Everyone gets kicks off something. And if you can do that into your job, then you're that's going to be amazing for you. You're going to see a lot of benefit. Obviously, it's, Josh it's here, studying. Old, it's that old cliche saying that you always hear. is like, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But yeah. it's so true. Yeah, no, 100%. You want to have a clear purpose. Right, so let's get stuck into some gains, some hypertrophy. Right, so Josh, what is hypertrophy? So muscle hypertrophy in its most basic form is just the ability of us to put on muscle mass. That's simply it, just the ability for muscle to grow. And I think most people associate it with aesthetic or cosmetic reasons. You know, they want to look better, they want to look better naked, they want to look better for the preferred member of their preferred sex or whatever. But hypertrophy itself has a number of different health benefits, you know, cardiovascular function, longevity, insulin sensitivity, the inflammatory response, you're more resilience to disease, reduction in rest of blood pressure. You know, these are things that people are often overlooking in terms of muscle hypertrophy, but they're very, very important. You know, people who engage in regular resistance training tend to have a higher bone mineral density compared to people who don't. They also tend to live longer. They're more resilient to infection or disease. So there is a number of different benefits we can get from hypertrophy as opposed to just getting bigger and getting some gains. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to take into consideration. Yeah, 100%. And like one thing I really try to push out there is like, Yes, by all means, like I'm. Uh, it's cool that you want to look good and want to look bigger and get a V taper, etc. But as you've covered, like you want to look after your body. Like you only get one body. Like taking care of it. Um, you want to be able to feel energetic in your day. You want to be able to, um, like just wake up with a bit of energy in your day to day tasks. Like I think that th- that stuff doesn't get talking about a lot. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree, and it's just something that it isn't talked about. I think it's one of those things that probably needs to come to the forefront because everyone knows that doing weight training is going to grow some sort of muscle. So it's what what else does it bring to the table? What other benefits are you getting? Because people would associate cardiovascular function with your typical aerobic training, your cardio stuff. But you can get that just from weight training as well. Mm. Like I, I've recently got myself a Fitbit. I actually got it for free because my girlfriend got a second one by mistake and gave me this one. And I've been looking at my heart rate. I know they're not the most accurate, but as long as you're using the same sort of tracker and all that. But my resting heart rate is around 48. Now, I've never done aerobic training in I don't know how long. It has been mm. years. I think the last time I've done some aerobic training was 
I've done a half marathon probably about seven or eight years ago, and that was probably the last time I've done a road train. <laughs> but you can see Good that there's, there's clear adaptation there. Yeah. To, if you're training hard, if you're training right, you're going to get adaptations of the whole body. Well, I don't know anyone, but if you want to get some cardiovascular adaptations, go and do 20 rep split squats, and you'll <laughs> you'll soon see you'll soon be out of breath. But put on a Bulgarian split squats, do 20 reps, and you'll be <laughs> blowing out of your ass. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and then, how does hypertrophy occur, man? What does it take to get these? They get all these benefits. So, there's a couple of things here we should probably discuss. The first thing is, I'm not sure if you've came across it, the said principle. Yeah. So the said principle is um, basically we need to have a specific response to an imposed demand. And that's one thing that, it seems very common sense. You need to train to get a specific response. But a lot of people will go into the gym. It's one of those things you heard probably a couple of years ago. You don't hear it too much now, but... Well, if you want to gain muscle, you have to lift heavy weights and low reps. But if you want to cut down body fat, you have to lift light weights and more reps. Hmm. But muscle grows through three mechanisms, which we'll cover. And it doesn't matter if you're trying to cut down, if it doesn't matter if you're trying to increase muscle size. The second principle is the ability to innervate the muscle. And I like the word innervate. Other people will call it mind-muscle connection. Other people will call it execution or place in tension, but it's being able to activate the muscle you're trying to work. If you can't activate a muscle, then you're not going to be able to grow it. And you get people who are just focused on moving weight from A to B, they will grow. But then the question is, are you growing optimally? And I know, I know even looking at your own Instagram feed and that, you're focusing a lot more on execution. And I would... 100% said that you you would agree that executing an exercise properly makes it 10 times harder and you're probably using lighter weight 100% so, like I got guys training 10-15 years coming down and you put them on a, a set with half the weight and you get them to actively think about it now you are going to get an internal focus on that which that that's a variable itself because you're thinking about it and things going on but yeah, when you get someone executing an exercise properly, like it's it's a different yeah. it's it's a different ball game. So I think those are the first two things we need to consider is making sure we're training specifically for the adaptation, and then being able to actually execute or innervate the muscle. In terms of actual mechanisms about how hypertrophy occurs, we have three main mechanisms. The first mechanical tension. Most people would associate this with progressive overload. But mechanical tension is the ability for the muscle to apply a force to a given load. And it's to do with the force generation and the stretch, which is considered essential to muscular growth. And this has been shown countless times in the research. Overload of a specific intensity leads to growth. And if you don't apply overload, then you get atrophy or breakdown of the muscle tissue. That is probably the primary driver of muscle hypertrophy, is mechanical tension. But we have two others that shouldn't be ruled out either. The second one, metabolic stress. Metabolic stress isn't considered a primary mechanism of hypertrophy, which is quite strange because most bodybuilding programs or style training will focus around metabolic stress. Um, 
But metabolic stress is the accumulation of waste products, essentially, from muscle contraction. So you're looking at lactate, hydrogen ions, inorganic phosphates, creating all that accumulating from the tissue. Now, the actual pathway about how that creates you know, muscle protein synthesis is still to be uncovered. But there is clear evidence that metabolic stress equals muscle growth. The final one is or, sorry, muscle damage. Most training, as I'm sure you'll know yourself, will lead to some sort of damage, even if it's, even if it's some sort of aerobic work, right up to heavy resistance training. It all leads to some sort of muscular damage, and that can be damage to very small macromolecules right up to large tears within the actual muscle tissue. It's thought that from the breakdown of the muscle architecture, you know, you're referring to if you see your sarcomeres and your Z-lines and your active myosin, from them breaking down, you get an inflammatory response. The inflammatory response then leads to the release of growth factors, which then leads to cell light cell proliferation, and then you get muscle growth tissue and your DNA and RNA and all that there lovely stuff. What is active and myosin and things like that for anyone that doesn't know? So the way your muscle contracts is through two main contractile proteins, actin and myosin. And I know people probably can't see me now, but if you think of your two hands together, out straight, your actin and myosin works as sort of like an, like an accordion as such. And it pulls each other together, but you think this is the whole length of your muscle. And as they contract, your muscle gets shorter. As they relax, the muscle lengthens essentially. And when we're talking about muscle damage, you're talking about damage to those contractile proteins, the breakdown of them. And you're hoping that the remodeling of them will make them not only stronger, but will make them thicker in size as well. And then if someone, so what is that theory, where can someone go and read more about that? And what's that theory called? Um, it's usually called the sliding filament theory. If you type it into Google, it'll come up. Any textbooks, I would say the Bible of exercise physiology is the McArdle Catch and Catch book. Mm. I think it's called just exercise physiology or exercise science. But if you type it, if you type in the sliding muscle theory, even to YouTube, you get a very good explanation of the biochemical pathway of what's occurring when you contract a muscle. Yeah. And then, man, so is there like, so there are the three uh, mechanisms, there are three principles of hypertrophy. Is there like a perfect way to gain hypertrophy? What's more beneficial? Um, is there different rep ranges? Talk about that. <laughs> this is a big one, Ben. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things here we could discuss um, in terms of intensity, in terms of loading, volume frequency, exercise selection, all this. So I'll try the best way to describe it. I'll give I'll give it a description based on the research and I'll, I'll give a description based on what you can actually do practically in the gym. In terms of different loading schemes, there's some very recent research over in the past, I would say past six months about this. And it was looking at different loading schemes in terms of comparing Typical strength training or powerlifting style routines to bodybuilding style routine equating for volume. So the volume was the exact same. The only difference was the load. 
So one of them used a typical 95% of your 1RM. The other one used your typical bodybuilding 70, 85% of 1RM. Volume is equated over a week. And for anyone who doesn't know, volume is the total number of reps by total number of sets by total weight lifted. And what they basically found was heavier loads tends to increase maximal strength, which isn't really a surprise. But what they also found was that light loads were just as good on promoting hypertrophy compared to strength side training. The only caveat here is that the lighter loads need to be taken to failure. So if you're having someone who's doing, say, seven sets of three reps compared to someone who's doing three sets of 10 reps, the three by 10 needs to be taken to failure to get the same sort of time under tension, the same volume of the set compared to the strength. That's for hypertrophy. Strength is undoubtedly going to be stronger in a specific manner to strength training. So if you're not too concerned about strength, if your goal is not to be a power lifter, if you're just looking about accruing as much muscle tissue as possible, then I would suggest, based on the literature, a varied load. So it needs to contain heavier weights, but it also needs to contain lighter weights. And those lighter weights need to be taken close to muscular failure. The other one we should discuss is training frequency. Now, based on a meta-analysis in 2016, which a meta-analysis is sort of a combination of a number of different research papers and looking at their outcomes. 2016, there was a meta-analysis done on training frequency, looking at is there any difference between training once a week, twice a week, three times a week, four times a week, in terms of a specific muscle group. Twice a week training is better than once a week, but it doesn't appear that three times a week is any more beneficial than two times a week. So from that, we could say that muscle groups should be trained twice a week. Three times a week isn't going to give any additional benefit, but it's also not going to be any detrimental. So depending on whatever way your program's set up, maybe you only have three times a week to go to the gym and you do three upper body or three full body sessions. That's not going to be any detrimental doing, say, a upper, lower, upper split, and then the second week doing lower, upper, lower. So I would suggest hitting most things twice per week, most muscle groups. In a practical sense, would you ever change depending on muscle group? So, like, for example, um, I, I I couldn't quote evidence on it, but from an anecdotal experience, like, I find that guys can hit smaller muscle groups, like delts, calves, arms, up to three, four times a week, and see massive gains and massive progress. Uh, now, it wouldn't be the first principle we're optimally aiming for. We're going to be aiming for progressive overload. It would mainly be metabolic stress. It would mainly be, um, say, for example, I had a guy and they looked quite narrow and we wanted to sort of uh, sculpt uh, a wider looking physique. Like, yes, he might trade everything else twice a week, but we might get a, hit a, the lateral head of his delt up to four times a week and pump him up with uh, a lot of higher sets at metabolic stress. What do you think about that, like different muscle groups and different frequencies? I think that's that's a good point, and that's going to be quite individual specific. In terms of research, there isn't too much done recently on that, that type of question, but from what is done, volume does relate directly to hypertrophy. 
So in that regard, hitting a muscle group with more volume will get a response and get more response in terms of hypertrophy for that given muscle group. The problem that you have there is you can't do that all the time. Mm, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, it's, it's going to be periodized into a program. And that's fine for the likes of if you're doing your skinny to strong and you're writing a program for a number of guys, you can make changes to that based on their progress and you can ramp up volume. Because I, I myself, just while you're on that, I recently done a bit of an overreaching phase on my delts where I started off at around 15 sets per week on my delts. And by the end of the 12 weeks, I was hitting 49 sets per week. Uh, three right? times? Three three times a week. Now, obviously, you know, you've got, you've, you've prioritized your delts. So you're doing them first. You're doing them, you know, so I was doing them with chest on the first day. I done them first. I had a separate delts day, and then I had uh, upper body day with delts prioritized there as well. And like you said, I was hitting different mechanisms. So the delts day, I was doing the mechanical tension work, heavy weights, progressively increasing the percentages and the intensity over time. The other two days were more focused on muscle damage or metabolic stress. And with the likes of metabolic stress, you you can recover a lot quicker from it compared to something like mechanical tension. Like if you think of someone who went into the gym the very first time done, done a set of squats, you're not walking for a week after it. <laughs> yeah, Whereas yeah, if you, you know, delts are one of those ones that doesn't seem to get sore for a lot of people. It doesn't seem to experience DOMS a lot for a lot of people. It's funny when you do something like, I remember the first time ever doing DDP with delts and it was 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 of ladder raises. My delts were in agony. I couldn't yeah. even lift my arms up because they were that sore. But that's, you know, is it because there's, you're given a novel stimulus there or is it because there's too much volume there or what's the mechanism going on there? But I, I totally agree that different muscle groups can get more volume. Something like calves, everyone's on their calves most days. The other thing with the likes of calves, they're never really in a stretched position. Like day to day of life, you take females who are going around in high heels all the time. They're probably never going to be in a stretch position. Mm. So usually with a lot of my calf work and a lot of the calf work I would tell people to do, really focuses on that eccentric, saying two, three seconds between between reps in that stretch position or even finishing off on a set with like a loaded stretch. So you're doing, say you've done 10 reps of a heavy um, calf raise and then you finish off with a 60 second hold in the stretch position. If you can last 60 seconds after doing your three or four sets, five sets of calf work, fair play you because it's absolute agony. Any sort of loaded stretch is brutal. And if you do that with the likes of calves, you know, fair play to you. But I think that depending on the muscle group, depending on the volume, they can take more, but it needs to be periodized correctly. So I don't want people going away thinking, right, Josh done 49 sets on his shoulders. I'm going to do that from now to summertime and get massive shoulders. And it's like, well, no, I started off at 15 and worked my way up. Yeah. And also remember, like, you're, you're 245 pounds. You have a lot of muscle that you've built over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it, it's it's 
it's I think a lot of people miss the forest for the trees and it's you know taken in the big picture and in terms of volume I know you say about is there a amount of sets per, per week um, Brad Schoenfield done a meta analysis um, last year I think it was 2017 anyway at some point looking at what's the optimal sets anything less than 10 sets doesn't seem to you know give a good response starting 10 for most muscle groups seems to be a good starting point and then depending on recovery depending on individual variants depending on nutritional considerations you may be able to ramp that up and I know the likes of Revive Stronger who you had on here we we'll talk a lot about um, MEVs and MRVs and you know volume in terms of that. That's a good way to look at it as well. Most muscle groups can take probably around eight at the minimum, maybe six if you want to maintain muscle, and you can push it up to 20, 25 depending on the muscle group. The larger the muscle group, likes of legs or back, can sometimes respond better to that higher amount of volume. I know from looking at John Meadows stuff. John Meadows had a really weak back, and that was him to himself. And the only time he really responded in his back was when he increased his back training to 60 sets per week. Mm. And you're sort of thinking, does that not go against what we're sort of talking about? And it's like, well, no, because that's individual variance in him. The back's a big muscle group, trying to hit it from different angles, trying to hit it from different rep ranges, different loading parameters. It's going to take that. And if you're a pro bodybuilder, you need to root out them weaknesses. And he spent that time doing it. So it is very individual, but it's one of those things that, again, we were talking beforehand, keeping a logbook, something as simple as keeping a logbook. How many sets am I doing this week? How many sets am I doing on chest day or upper body day or pull day? And then making adjustments based on that. How you feel, how you're recovering, are you getting DOMS? Using that biofeedback um, and making adjustments that way. And then, man, so you said about a logbook there and things like that. If someone is into training, right, and they've just started a training program for three to six months, they've wrote it out themselves and stuff, um, what do they progress first? Do they progress load or do they progress volume? Or do they take down rest times? Or do they add an extra weight session in? What's the best way? The way I've done it, and I've been doing this now probably 10 years now, and I've always kept a logbook. The best program that I've ever responded from was a push-pull legs style routine, and it had three different rotations. The first rotation of push-pull legs was all about that mechanical tension, lifting weight, getting heavy loads. It was all within that sort of four to six rep range. The second rotation then was more focused on that typical 8 to 15 rep range. Slightly more volume, you know, slightly more working sets. And then the last rotation was all about that metabolic stress. We're talking 25 to 50 reps, mm. um, made up of supersets, giant sets, partials. Obviously not all at once, but maybe started off with like supersets. And then finishing that rotation, it was back to rotation one. And the way I worked out was over a five-day split. So say I'd done Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, off Saturday, and then on Sunday you would start whatever the next day was. And it meant that you were hitting every muscle group 
three times in an eight or nine day period. When you're logged up in that, I kept my rep ranges. So say the first rotation was four to six and I was doing bench and I was able to get 140 for four reps. The next session I came in, that rotation came around, I would say, right, last time I got 140 for four reps. I'm keeping the weight. Let's try and get an extra rep or two. Once I achieved that upper rep range, once I could hit, say, three working sets at 140 for 60, or six um, reps, sorry, then I increased the weight slightly, and I dropped the rep range back down to the four. I applied that over each of the rotations, so it meant that you progress in the weight first until you hit that upper um, threshold of that given rep range, and then you increase the weight. The rest times were specific to whatever the rotation was, so something like the heavy work got maybe three minutes rest time between sets, something like metabolic stress only got 60 seconds, 30 seconds sometimes. So rep or rest time stayed the same, the weight stayed the same until I reached that upper threshold and then the weight increased, but the rep ranges didn't change. And what that meant was that after six months, you were getting stronger in every single rep range, right from four reps right up to 250 on all those exercises you've chosen for that program. And you're hitting every mechanism of muscle hypertrophy. And that was probably the best progress that I ever saw on a program. And I followed that probably for a good year and a half, two years. And again, at the minute, I just don't have the time for it. But again, if you're training three days a week, you can still fit that in. It just means that your your rotation, your first rotation, will come back until week four, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%. And, uh, yeah, I'm a massive fan. I push pull leg split. Um, I like the frequency. I like how it works. Um, I like that you can get a decent pop off and stuff. Um, so you set up there about rest rest periods, man. So why would we change the rest periods for in, in a session? Like, why would we change? Why would we have one that we've got three minutes and one that we've got 60 seconds? Is this the target different fibers? Talk a bit about that. Um. So without getting into the nitty-gritty biochemistry of it, if you're using if you're doing a set of squats, heavy squats, we're talking 90, 95% of your 1RM. If you're doing four to six reps of that, that's gonna take it out of you. And it's gonna utilize fuel for contraction, mainly ATP. You need to have roughly two and a half to three minutes to sort of allow the majority of that to recover within your muscle tissue. Because when you're doing heavy work like that, you want good solid reps. You don't want to be grinding reps out. Um, like you were talking about doing like a 20, 20 rep squat or Bulgarian split squat. You don't want to you, be grinding those 20 reps out. Hmm. When, you're, when you're going for mechanical tension, when you're going for lifting heavy weight, you want it to be good quality reps, which yeah. is why a lot of um, Olympic athletes, you know, Olympic lifters and a lot of power lifters will do singles and doubles and triples because they are good quality reps whereas if you're sorry if you're doing something like metabolic stress a lot of supersets your aim is to accumulate as much metabolic waste within that tissue as possible by accumulating that that metabolic stress that blood that um inorganic phosphates the hydrogen ions the lactate you're hoping that that's going to lead to growth so you want to accumulate that so you give yourself less rest time 
And then people say, oh, well, why not do the likes of a jam set and have it all done within a couple of minutes? And it's like, but then the quality starts to decrease. So if you're doing like a jam set of six exercises and you're not a particularly experienced individual, by the fifth or sixth exercise, the actual quality and your ability to innervate or contract a muscle is going to be a lot less. So by doing something like a, a superset, you're keeping the quality of the rep there, you're keeping the contraction of the muscle there, but you're accumulating as much metabolic waste as possible. And that's why you sort of give yourself the less, less recovery within each, between each sets. So for a general rule of thumb, the more intense or the heavier the load, the sort of longer you need between each set. Yeah. No, 100%. And then that leads nicely on to, so you said about, for example, on a, a squat when we're going for four to six rep ranges at the higher end of our 1RM. If anyone doesn't understand 1RM, basically it means one rep max and it means what can we lift for, um, or what could we lift for one rep and it's worked out as 100%. So if someone could bench 100 kilos for one rep and they were doing 90%, it'd be 90 kilos. Um, so you were saying about then extra, you were saying about squats that you wouldn't uh, go to like, Tech, you would you wouldn't go past technical failure. You wouldn't go the yeah. complete muscular failure. And yeah. one thing that like what you need to think about is when you're going to go to failure and on what exercises and why you're going to go to a certain why you're going to go to a certain type of intensity. Um, so for example, if we had if we had a squat, right? I would keep someone on their I would keep someone a few reps shy in terms of what they could really, really do. Then the next exercise, say we've just done that and now we wanna um, basically pump up the quads, so get that metabolic stress as you were saying. You wouldn't choose a variation that has a lot of technical ability. You would go on the leg extension or a leg press or a hack squat, somewhere you're locked in. Would yeah, you agree yeah, or totally agree. how would you? Yeah, totally agree. It's, um, <laughs> it's one of those things that I hate seeing in gyms, but you see it all the time. And it comes down to stability of the exercise. How many times have you walked into a gym and you've seen a PT telling a client to do walking lunges or Bulgarian split squats with a barbell on your back? Hmm. And it's like, are you an idiot? It's like, what happens if that person hits fatigue or loses their balance yeah. and they've got a bar in the back as opposed yeah. to using dumbbells. There's literally no benefit to using a barbell in that instance compared to using dumbbells. Use the dumbbells. If they hit failure, they can drop it. And I think exercise selection is one of those things where if you're going for weight, if you're going for heavy loading, stick to something that you can lock yourself in. So talking about bench press, you know, if you're, if you're decent enough at bracing and decent enough technique, squat. If not, just there's no shame in overloading like a, a machine squat or um, a leg press. Use that as your main mechanism. If you're using back, rack pulls, deadlifts, and then progress on to metabolic stress on like dumbbells, machines, that type of thing. On that note, so every, I used to have a, I used to have a view when it wasn't uh... – I didn't have decent knowledge that the Smith machine was for fruits. <laughs> so, and now, all, if someone goes on my Instagram and sees some of my videos, all you see is me on the friggin' Smith machine. Smith, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I used to, it's crazy how my views changed. And the reason why is just you can physically, so I, um, we were talking about recovery and we were talking about 
um, how you need to look at that. Now, if I was to go yeah. and back squat four times in two weeks, I would be in tatters. Yeah. But if I was to go and do a, a heavy split squat on a Smith machine or a front squat or a back squat on that, and maybe even use some resistance bands to take off the loading in the bottom phase, I yep. could rack that bitch up and I could go to town and I would get the best pump and I yeah, that would be amazing for me. And yep. even on like chest exercises, because it is so stable, there isn't um by stable what we basically mean is like locked in. So there isn't much uh wiggling about and you're able to as Josh said, hypertrophy is force. It comes down to force and what you force output that you can apply from a muscle. And if you're stable, you're going to be able to provide so much more force and get just provide so much more work. So even, even on that, I think that myself included, but the majority of people in gyms can't stabilize themselves in most movements that they're doing. Hmm. Even when it comes to machines, they're very unstable. And... I know from looking at your, your stories and that and your content you're putting out, a lot of your stuff has been moved now to either machines or you're doing a lot of seated stuff because it keeps things a lot more stable and it keeps the contraction a lot a lot stronger. You're able to integrate the muscle more, you're able to execute the movement more. So you're ta- you're actually targeting the muscle. Like something as simple as every single male listening to this does the bench press. But how many people have you seen doing the bench press right? Do you know, that's, that's... do you know, I love, and you've probably seen it, me going on about it, the seated pec fly, like on a cable. Yeah. And the reason yeah. why is because you're so stable, there's no, like you see, what what most guys, when they can't do a bench press properly, is there's the stabilization within their mid-lower traps, just keeping, uh, keeping you attracted is the main issue for a lot. That's a common issue. Now, there's going to be, these are generalization points we're making. But then you see when you get someone on the pack fly, like I've had such a good response from that in terms of getting a connection. And a lot of my guys have said, yeah, that, that I get it on that. I get that innervation that you're talking about. But you know what the thing, the thing with that is, is that if you're doing something like that, you actually can feel the bench at your back. And if, you, if you're saying to your client, right, this is your scapula, I want you to drive them into that bench. They can feel the bench. They can feel themselves applying that force to the bench. But if you're telling them to do cable flies, which most guys do on a Monday night in International Chest Day, you don't get that. You can't feel your scapula unless you have a very good mind-muscle connection within your back. So by having a bench there, doing them seated, you can dry your scapula back. You, you can put them right down and depress them as much as you can because you can actually feel yourself putting against something. And then you can contract your chest. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people in a lot of movements don't do that. And it's the same on bench press. It's the same with like squats. Like leg extensions is probably the number one people, the one number one movement that people get the best contraction of. Everyone can get a good contraction of leg extensions, but how many people can get that same contraction doing a squat or doing a leg press? I have a really good question for you. Right. So, um, when you're in a leg extension, you get the muscle yeah. into a shortened position. So you, yeah. the, in terms of the strength curve, in terms of that, you're getting the muscle in a shortened position. If anyone listening to this, if you grab your arm, you bend your elbow and put it just slightly behind your ear, you're getting your bicep in a really shortened position. But how come we can't get the same the same mind-muscle connection 
when it's in a lengthened range. Now we can get it to a degree in the mid in the mid range, but in a lengthened range. So say for example, you said about a squat, but we can't feel it, we can't go on. Say someone's going into like a, a sissy squat where the quad's really lengthened, or um yes, a squat in general where it's more mid length. Why why can't why can't we feel that as much? Because usually in the shortened range, most people are the strongest, and most people are the weakest in, in the lengthened range. That's the, the short answer, and people don't spend enough time in the lengthened range. Like yeah. even like I, I seen you doing that bicep movement there. That's one that I learned from Ben Bukowski. Yeah, I love Ben's about, stuff. You know, ben, yeah, but it's it's that knowledge of being able to get a muscle in the short range. And if you take something like calf raises, because most of us spend our time in a mid to short range within a, with of our calf muscle, when you go to do a calf raise. It's very easy to get a contraction. It's that real cramping feeling in your calf. Mm -hmm. But in a lengthened range, the muscle fibers are lengthened. You're not going to get that same neurological stimulus or that neurological power to it. It's only when you really get a muscle contraction or contracted in the shortest position that you're going to get that cramping pain. But it doesn't mean that you can't work a muscle in its lengthened range. And people need to spend more time there. Um, one of the things that I started adding into my training over this past about six months is loaded stretches. So take something like, I'll go through my whole chest session. I'll finish off my chest session with um, a loaded fly. So just like a standard dumbbell fly on a flat bench, I'll bring the weights out to the side until I feel a good stretch in the chest. I'll place some tension on my chest by slightly contracting it and then trying to hold it for 45 60 seconds, trying to do three or four sets. That is spending time in the lengthened position. You've got a pump on, you're good and warm. It's going to be fairly safe. You're not going to do much damage. You've got to you usually use like a lightish weight because even the likes of a 7.5 kilo dumbbell is going to cause you agony after 30 seconds. But it just allows you to spend time within that lengthened position. And the same I was talking about earlier about calves, I get people to spend time in the lengthened position. Because it's one of those things that people don't do enough. And if you don't do it, you're not going to be able to contract within that range. Remember, a muscle can only contract or relax. And this is one thing that usually annoys me. People saying, I'm going to do incline bench from my upper chest. Well, no, you're not. You're contracting your chest. Yes, you can place certain emphasis on certain areas, but you can't isolate your upper chest, your lower chest. You can't isolate different movements um, or different muscles. So it is about placing tension on the right area or placing emphasis on a certain area as opposed to you know doing upper I'm going to do all incline work because that's gonna get me a big up you know big incline or a big upper chest. It's like, well no, you need to place emphasis in that area, you need to do the right movements, but you need to know the biomechanics behind it as to why you're doing it. You need to know what way the muscle fibers run in order to get that muscle into its shortest position. For example, to get your, your upper chest into its shortest position, your chest has two main attachment sites. One is, is your sternum, the other one is your clavicle. If you're doing an incline bench press, that is not hitting your upper chest, that is hitting still the sternum head of your chest because that's where it attaches. The, the, your chest is mainly involved in horizontal flexion, which is if you have your arms out like a T and you bring them in close, right in front of you, that's horizontal flexion, that is working the sternal head of your chest. 
Whereas if you do something like a close grip, incline press, incline bench, you've changed the movement to flexion of the shoulder, which is arms down by your side and lift your arms straight up in front of you. That is targeting. If you, if you do that right now and even feel it, you can feel your upper chest contracting. Just put it up in here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. feel it contracting. So by moving, if you're doing an incline bench from here to up, you can automatically feel that upper chest contracting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you think, think of it, think of it more of a, like you would do a close grip, tricep press. So you're sort of like shoulder width grip of heart. Your arms are nice down by your side. You're not flared out. And then you're lifting that way. You can feel your upper chest activating. And that's about getting the muscle into its shortest position. And you need to be able to know how to do that with all muscle groups. And like you said about biceps, by putting your arm behind your head while it's elevated, is getting that into its shortest position. But you need to spend time in the lengthen position to be able to realize this is the full range of my muscle. I need to hit the full range of this muscle through the course of this workout or through the course of this rotation. And then you can start getting better contractions or better innervation. Okay. So that's that those are all really good points. Um about the length and range, about we spend time in there, why we're strong in the sh- uh, why we're strong in different ranges and things like that. How would if you were to write a program, right? So say if you were to write a week's work of someone's training, right? They've got everything perfect. Um, we'll just take some generalization here. How would it differ between someone who's six months into training and then someone who's three, four, five years into training? How would the two programs differ? <laughs> How would it differ? Um, it wouldn't really. To be honest, the what I would start with is the beginner needs to know how to execute the movements. So I would make sure for the six, for the first six to twelve months that they know how to execute movements in the shortened range, in the mid range, in the lengthened range of like the majority of exercises they're going to need. They don't need to do anything fancy, but they need to be able to keep stable in a certain position. So that's using that's possibly even using machines, possibly helping using benches, uh, the likes of a uh, you see people doing tricep extensions or tricep pull downs with a rope. If you change that to your cable machines, doing them seated, most people are more stable. They get a better contraction. They learn what a contracted tricep feels like. Can I touch on that? So something yeah. that yeah. I, anyone who's been listening to this, I've talked about my coach and I've talked about how I'm learning and getting just basically I'm treating the gym like a playground and messing around a bit and so one thing that he was talking about was external um, bracing so you said about stabilization and I we were doing this exercise and it's massive I've tried it on a few things is about um, so the, the example here was with a rope you're doing a lap pullover and you're trying to engage your you activate your lower lats just before you go into your session but you see when you hold something on your other hand Oh my God, you can load up so much more and get a better connection and get a such better thing. And even, I, I, I messed around and 
I was doing right, so I'm going to try and teach someone a hip hinge. If anyone doesn't know what a hip hinge, it's basically like what you would do in like an RDL, a deadlift, a hip thrust. But you see if you hold like a bar or something beside and you try and hip hinge, the movement that you can coordinate so much better. Yeah, yeah. I'd never came across that. Like it's not just internal bracing. So if anyone knows about internal bracing, it's basically where you're, you're controlling your breathing. You're trying to get as much intra like tension in your whole body, but then external when you hold something. Yeah, I think like external bracing is one of those things that is so overlooked. Like most people probably don't know that I don't do a lot of one-to-one coaching, so it's not something that I really discuss too much. But it's one thing that when I do try and bring up, it's something that is overlooked. By keeping some sort of thing, whether it's a bar, whether it's a um, whether it's a bench, some sort of external loading or external bracing makes the muscle more stable. It makes contraction contraction stronger. And it's not saying that you're going to use that for the rest of your training career, but it's teaching you how to contract a muscle, how to target a certain muscle, how to get it from its lengthened range into its shortest. So then when you go and do some internal bracing or you move to other exercises, you can get that same contraction without the use of external bracing. Hmm. Yeah. So then would you recommend some in the first phase for that first person who's in the first six months to 12 months of training, would you recommend that? Well, yeah, like I, for most beginners, I would say that they need some sort of bracing to try and help with stabilization. The problem there is, especially with a lot of the PT courses, is they don't teach stuff like that and they don't know. So people who are listening to this thinking, well, how do I find out about internal external bracing? It's not something you can just go and learn on a PT course. It's not something that, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not something that's really widely available unless you are following the right people in the industry. What? Teach that. One of the best people, uh, best experiences I ever had with bracing was when I done a bit of powerlifting training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They like bracing is one of those things that people think they know how to do it. Like it, it's often called within sort of physiology the falsalvo maneuver, mm-hmm. and it's basically forcing expiration or breathing out against a closed epiglottis. And when you do that, everything should tighten up. Your whole abdominal wall, your whole posterior should. You're increasing the pressure and contracting their muscles to keep things stable and keep things safe. But most people don't know how to do it. They just they just go in and attempt it. But unless you get specific training, for example, through powerlifting, you're not going to know it. And it's the same with external bracing. Unless someone teaches you or you have a coach here saying, listen, you can't figure it out, but let's try this here. Yeah, one of the biggest things that I found was Ben Bukowski's stuff was probably some of the best stuff I learned from in terms of contraction and short and length and range. So it wasn't about bracing, but it was about contraction. And unless you have a coach, someone like yourself um, or Callum, who's teaching you, you're not going to know a lot of that bracing techniques and you're not going to develop that way. Now, if you're a PT listening to this, it probably is a good idea to go and do sort of uh, a, a, a mesophase or a cycle or a phase of powerlifting to learn those techniques and then take it away, apply it to your own bodybuilding cell training, and then apply it to your plants. And just on that point, like you see, if you're bracing in squats and you learn oh. how to brace, holy shit, you can add 10, 20 kilos of most lifts. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like if you yeah. want to boost your if you want to boost your own ego, like that's if you and you want to increase <laughs> your squat, that's one way to do but it. Like it's the same as you know every exercise should have some sort of bracing. You know, there's not too many exercises you do that you shouldn't be bracing. Hmm. Yeah. And that could be bracing internally or externally. Yeah. I was amazed the first time I ever ever got shown how to brace um, on a bodybuilding sort of sense was in an incline bench press um, by a guy down Limerick and it was unbelievable just how stable you felt um, and yeah it was hundred it was amazing so like there's for the first first phase two things that that person needs to focus on is the mind muscle connection and getting stable throughout the the whole rep. Yeah, yeah. Without getting into too many generalizations, like obviously, advanced lifters can sustain more volume and that type of thing. But in terms of what people can do from the outset, those are the, the two points that people need to learn. Because I wish I learned them two points when I was starting out weight training, but I haven't learned them until probably three, four years ago. And then, what would the advanced? What could we give away for the advanced? Like, what would what would be different for the advanced trainee and their programming and things? Um, see, you can make training as complicated or as simple as you want. I can train. I would. I would say I've been weight training ten years, but I've I've probably been doing it properly four years. And by by properly, I mean focusing on contraction, focusing on bracing, focusing on these things we're discussing, eating right, getting all that together. And my program isn't much different. I'm still focusing on bracing. I'm still focusing on that mind-muscle connection. I'm still focusing on getting stronger over different rep ranges. The only difference is because I know how to contract a muscle, I can now sort of earn the right to add load to it. Mm. I can earn the right to lift weight. And that's probably one of the biggest things is once you know how to contract a muscle, you can start focusing in on progressive overload until you're getting to mechanical breakdown or your form's breaking down. You can you can accumulate more volume. You can start to incorporate um, sort of resensitization phases. For example, a beginner doesn't really need deloads, doesn't really need to resensitize. So they can hit the gym, they can go probably 12, 16 months and reap massive benefits. If you're training four, five, six years properly, you probably do need some deloads in there because your volume's going to be higher, your intensity's going to be higher. You need to sort of resensitize the body during those phases. Mm. But in terms of actual programming, I don't see a need for anything real different because once you have something that works, it's sticking with it. It's getting stronger over those exercises. It's getting the contraction right. It's focusing on the metabolic stress accumulation, the muscle damage. I think one of the problems that a lot of people make in the gym is a program hop they jump on one program and then they see that oh Ben's doing those these fancy exercises let's, let's do them for my triceps so I'll start doing them yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. see someone else in the gym and they program hop instead of just saying listen this is a program I like I'm going to get stronger over each of these exercises once an exercise starts to stall in terms of strength I monitor my fatigue if I'm not fatigued if I don't need a deload then I swap the exercise out, put in a new exercise that's quite similar, and get stronger. Again, I think that's the main thing. Again, that goes. we've already touched on that, and it goes back to that point. Firstly, we're trying to create an adaptation. We can't create an adaptation if we're doing different things. Going back to that specific 
principle. Um, and then the next thing as well is like we need to make decisions based on logic rather than impulse. So if you see me doing a mad exercise and you think that looks cool as fuck, but you need to make it like, is that right for me? Why is he doing that? Would do, do I need to do that? Will that give me the same outcome that I'm wanting? So yeah, they're two big main points. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't see there's any real difference. It, um, finding something that you enjoy, find something you can adhere to, and just contract the muscle well and get strong over those rep ranges, and you're guaranteed growth. I'll give so I'll give a bit of an example for a listener to show what it looks like for my train at the minute. So the last twelve months, the first phase was back to the basics. And I don't think a lot of advanced trainees and people who have trained for years go back to the pajama board enough. Would you agree? Oh, totally. totally. Like, That's one thing that when you asked me about my biggest training moment and I talked about my back injury, that was one time where I just had to strip the ego back and go like, I need to find out why my basic biomechanics and movement is wrong and it's causing me issues. Yeah. And I had to strip everything back and I had to build something that a lot of people take for granted is the squat is a complicated exercise. You know, it's, there's a lot going on. And if you don't have the right ankle, hip, knee mobility, if you don't have the right spine, if you don't have the bracing, that's, that's even without load. When you add load on top of that, it exacerbates everything. And even a point to add to that, structure. I don't get every guy squatting, like back squatting or front squatting. Like, no. uh, like if someone's uh, basically got long as hell femurs and a short torso there is no way i'll get him doing a back squat he's just gonna he's gonna cripple over he's gonna go over like a, a deck of cards like he, there's gonna be certain exercises suited to certain some cer- someone's structure oh definitely definitely i think people get married to exercises and think well if you want big legs you must squat and it's like well no you don't you need to go for your individual structure and what's best for you Again, it goes back to the definition. What do we? How do we achieve uh, hypertrophy? We achieve hypertrophy by basically giving an output from that muscle. Yeah, applying a load, and you know, it's a specific adaptation to an imposed demand. Yeah. But you're not. The muscle doesn't know if you're doing a leg press or a squat. So if you're if you're biomechanically and architecturally, if you're better suited for a leg press, then load that leg press up and focus on progressively overloading it. Yeah. rather than potentially getting injured from a squat. Yeah. So the first phase was all about going back to the basics and looking at a lot of things like that, looking at how I move, looking at getting those contractions, taking off the ego, taking off the load. Then um, I went on holiday and I came back and slowly eased back in. But then the second phase, the second phase was instead of an upper body and a lower body, so an upper body and a lower body, you're not going to get much volume. So you won't um, in a given session. So because you're trying to hit so many muscle groups, like – after a certain amount of sets, as um, Josh was saying, that less than ten, I'm sure more than twenty, more than thirty is go- like anywhere around that is going to just be diminished. You're not going to have any form of intensity. Um, so it's fine that sweet spot. But yeah, after that, I went to push pull leg. So that's basically you're going to get a wee bit more volume for each muscle group, but not hit it as frequently, like over say like a monthly basis. Then now how that's progressed into the third phase is we've progressed uh, frequency. So I would do a push, a pull, a rest, an upper, a lower, a rest, a push, 
a pool, a rest, a p- an upper or lower, a rest. And that is fucking, like, that's that's just one way that you can in- just add more volume. Um, it's one way that you can increase um, over time. Mm-hmm. But now, after this phase, because I, this phase won't last for long, I'll go back to the basics again, and I'll take that, that deload, I'll take that period where I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't maintain this sort of training intensity and frequency year-round. And that's the big point yeah. that I want to get across. Like for that advanced trainee, build it up over a twelve month basis. Is your fire alarm going off? <laughs> it goes off every Wednesday. Give us two seconds. <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> so yeah, and that's that's one way that you can um progress and things. Then I'll go back to um go back to the drawing board and take things back a bit because you just can't maintain that sort of um, training long term um, as again Josh has mentioned a lot about fatigue Josh is physically studying about fatigue management within exercise um, and it can it's, it's going to be detrimental if you're wanting to get that hypertrophy goal to maintain that yeah, yeah it's, it's just getting that resensitization phase within a, an advanced individual yeah so Josh let's sum today up with a bit of podcast ping pong we have talked about loads of different topics and loads of different things within hypertrophy. Hypertrophy is so like you can take it so many ways. Um so there's there is a lot of things to think about. And like one thing I do want to reinforce today is if this seemed a wee bit sciencey, if this seemed a wee bit you don't know um how these things occur, like me and Josh, we both listen to stuff and we both read stuff and we're like, right, I understand that term, but I don't understand that word and that. And it'll come over time. But if we can, if you can, if there's a certain area of what we talked about and you don't really fully get it, just message us. I'm going to give contact details for Josh um, and myself and just message us and we can maybe sit down and explain it a wee bit better for you and things like that. Um, because it is a lot to take in within one hour. Um, would you agree, Josh? Yeah, yeah I'm always happy to to talk and discuss anything science related and break things down and I think like you said an hour is a very short time to try and cover all this and try and cover it well so if anyone wants to discuss happily message both of us and we'll do something do something to help you out right so Josh I am going to hit the timer so you know the score in terms of podcast ping pong basically for 30 seconds we are going to sum up what you need to remember um, by having a rally and seeing how many um, points that we can get across so I'll start off Josh you need to remember to have a logbook and to look at what you're doing on a monthly basis like that was mine you need to remember to progress your lifts over a number of different rep ranges you need to remember to stabilize and one good way of doing this would be to go into a machine instead of rather than three whip. You need to remember to stick to one program and not program hop between different programs. You need to remember that there isn't um there isn't like a perfect rep range or intensity. Um, but if you are going in a lower um if you are going to higher rep range, you're gonna to need to go to uh you're going to need to go to muscular failure. You need to remember to activate muscles given to your specific body. Adopt exercises that work. You need to remember that there's a short, mid and long range and we want to be spending time within all three ranges and covering that. 
you need to remember that within those ranges, you need to. Oh, I've lost the point. Oh, you need to remember to contract within those ranges, to apply them across the program, and not stress about hitting them in one session, but over the course of a week. You need to remember, and this is from Josh's experience, to take care of yourself um, before you basically break yourself. Sound good? Perfect. Sounds perfect, Ben. Awesome. Right, so where can we find you, Josh, if we want to get more information about what you're studying about, what you're, what you're doing? I also know that every now and again you do a bit of online coaching. Um, I know that's very uh, the spaces are very limited, but if someone's really got um, a lot from today, where can they get in contact with you? Like I said to you before, I don't tend to put out much content online because I just don't have the time for it. But if people are wanting to discuss science, anything relating to hypertrophy, training, whatever it is, just contact me on my personal Facebook or personal Instagram account and I'll happily sit down and discuss with most people. Awesome. Thank you very much for listening today, guys. I hope that got a lot, you got a lot from that. I hope as well that you it makes you think about your program and then think about the next time you're going into the gym. And like one thing I want to stress is if you're training three hours a week, like if you're training three four hours a week whatever like make the most use out of it like listen to these podcasts and make sure that you're being effective make sure you're getting that desired outcome that you're going in there and spending that amount of time because it is a lot of time and it is a lot of sacrifice to give up so make sure that you are um making the best use out of it okay thank you very much and um if there's anything you want to hear if there's any topics anyone you want on Just give me a message and I'm more than happy to try and get them on. Thank you very much.